The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. This morning, our discipleship pastor, Lou Dawson, will be admonishing us to return to our first love, that is Jesus Christ. Let's join Lou now in his sermon. Well, we're living in an age when when droves of previously solid Bible teaching churches have just simply abandoned teaching the scriptures. Nearly every day we hear of new instances of church leaders teaching the truths of the world in place of the Bible, and sometimes even unfortunately advocating blatant heresy. And the results are depressingly applicable and predictable too, both the A few weeks ago, Pastor Nate reviewed some recent survey results of beliefs and practices of today's evangelical Christians in the United States. Essentially, the lives and beliefs of many who claim the name of Jesus today are, for the most part, little different than those in the world. For any of you who have attended this particular church for any length of time, you know that the leadership of this church has steadfastly refuse to be swayed by this defection. Week after week, verse after verse, we are committed to teaching and preaching God's Word. Whether whether it's popular or not, we're going to do it. Do we have the market cornered on this determination? No, we don't. And thankfully, we're standing with other churches and ministries who share this same commitment to God's truth. Do we have all of our doctrine and practice correct? I seriously doubt it. But we do humbly seek to be obedient to the Lord's exhortation that he gave to his young pastor, Timothy. Through the Apostle Paul, the Lord commented to Timothy, he told him to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. In many ways, we seem to have arrived at that point right now. I'm convinced that RBC's emphasis on teaching the truth is pleasing to the Lord. But there's also a very, it's a very subtle but lethal danger that quietly stalks RBC and any other church that seeks to teach and live out God's truth. And as one of the under-shepherds of this church, it's my responsibility to warn the entire flock, but, but also warn myself of this deadly threat to our church. We're certainly not the first church to face this danger. Back in the first century, Jesus himself warned a solid, truth-teaching church of this threat. And this morning I'd like to look at that warning with the objective of applying it to my own life as well as helping you to apply it to yours. The title of this morning's message is Preserving Your First Love. And our text is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1-6. through 6. Now, before diving into this passage, we need some background information in order to make sense of it. The book of Revelation 
was written by the Apostle John at the command of the Lord Jesus himself. He gave John a a panoramic view and, and a vision of the future of the world, but also the future of his own church. And he commanded John, he said, John, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, these seven churches were all in what was called in his day Asia. And today, this is called is the country of Turkey, actually. And at the time John received this vision, he was exiled by the Roman government on an island called Patmos, which is about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. And John was the former pastor of the strongest of these seven churches, the, the city in the city of Ephesus where that church was. And the first three chapters of Revelation contain the messages to each one of these seven churches, with the first of these messages going to John's home church in Ephesus. And this is actually the message we're going to look at this morning. Now, the church in Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul some 35 years prior to John's vision. The city of Ephesus was the principal city in the area and very worldly with a reputation as the worship center of the Greek goddess Diana. The city was filled with all sorts of of demon worship and witchcraft and the gospel of Christ actually not only brought salvation to the Ephesians, but it completely changed the culture of the entire city. The power of God was prominently displayed in this revival, and Jesus was loved and magnified and worshipped by many new believers. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke makes this comment about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He said, This, the mighty power of God, became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon all of them, And the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now remember that the letter we're going to look at today was written to a church after this, 35 years later. The first generation of church leaders, the ones who had been saved and actually saw this right here, These leaders had stepped down or passed away. And the Ephesian church was now being led by a second generation of leaders. These men that were leading this church had most likely heard the stories, but they hadn't been part of the actual revival. And many of these leaders had probably been raised in Christian homes and had not experienced the dramatic life transformation that took place in this first generation of Ephesian believers. These men were good, solid, godly men, but they had a different Christian experience than the first generation. Now, with this background covered, if you haven't done so already, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And if you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in a seat pocket there in front of you. And read along with me. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, 
and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now notice Now notice that uh, the uh, the first thing we notice in this passage is the receiver of this message in verse 1a. The message was given to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now the Greek word for angel used here can also mean Messenger, And in a number of places in the New Testament, this word is actually appropriately translated messenger. And in this context, the meaning seems to fit best here. Now, putting all this together, the word angel can also mean messenger and was likely given this message to the chief messenger of the Ephesian church, the pastor. So the pastor was the one who received this message. We don't know who the pastor was, but he was tasked by the Lord to relay this message to the church in Ephesus. Now, second, the last half of verse 1 tells us who was the giver of this particular message. It tells us two things about him. First, he was the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, the stars are obviously figurative, and Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 tells us about these seven stars. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the seven stars are actually the seven pastors of the churches receiving this message from the Lord. And these same pastors were held firmly in his right hand under the Lord's firm control and protection. He who is the sovereign ruler over all creation directs them, he will use them, and he will guide them. And this giver of this message was also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we learn that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the giver of this message to the Ephesian church walked among all of these churches. He knew what was going on in each one. He knew the hearts of all those in the congregation. Nothing was hidden to his eyes. Notice also that these were golden lampstands. The one walking among them not only knew everything that was going on about these churches, but these churches were extremely valuable. They were precious to him. They were like gold. Now, Revelation 1 actually describes the one holding these pastors in his hands, the one who knew all about these people. John actually saw him and described him saying this. He said, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one standing like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Yes, this was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Holy One, the one whose face blazes with light. Jesus is the one holding the pastor of the Ephesian church, the one who knew all about this church and the one who gave his message to their pastor. Well, now that we've looked at the receiver of this message and the giver of the message, let's look at the actual message that Jesus gave to the Ephesian church. First, let's look at Jesus' compliments to the Ephesian church in verse 2 and 3 and 6. In these verses, we will find four compliments that Jesus gives to this church. Now, the first of these compliments is in verse 2, where Jesus says to the Ephesian church, I know your deeds and your toil. You see, Jesus knew that the Ephesians were working hard. And that word for toil actually means, it means to labor to the point of just utter exhaustion. You see, the members of the Ephesian church were working very hard at teaching the truths of Scripture, at spreading the gospel. They weren't just casual Sunday morning Christians. That's not what they were about. They were sincere in their faith, and they worked very hard at it. And Jesus' second compliment was that Not only did they work hard, but they persevered in this labor. In fact, Jesus mentioned that the Ephesians' perseverance, he mentions this in verse 2 and again in verse 3. In the 35 years since this church had been founded, they had persevered in the midst of great suffering. They had endured under the terrible persecution inflicted on them by the maniacal Roman Emperor Nero. And they held fast to their faith, even as many in their number were killed. Even as John was receiving this message from the Lord, he and many other Christians were suffering under the Roman Emperor Domitian. Yet the Ephesian church persevered and didn't give up when faced with hardship. Now Jesus' third compliment was also in verse 3, when he commented that the Ephesians could not tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. Well, evidently, the Ephesian leadership had never forgotten the warning that the Apostle Paul had given them actually 30 years earlier. As you see, as Paul was headed to Rome, he knew that he only had one last opportunity to see and instruct the leaders of the Ephesian church, and he loved these guys. He had spent three years with them and brought them up in their faith, and he knew them well. And Luke actually records this message in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. Paul told him this, he said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise 
speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And the Ephesian church leadership had heeded these words. Even the second generation of leaders had heeded these words. They had educated themselves in the scriptures so that they clearly understood what was right and wrong in the Lord's eyes. These guys, they knew their stuff. And not only did they know their stuff, but they took their job of protecting the flock very seriously. Notice that they protected the flock by by not tolerating evil men. You see, if a church is to function biblically, it cannot allow its members to persist in unrepentant evil attitudes and actions. Now please notice how carefully I worded that last statement. All of us here, myself included, we sin from time to time. And at times all of us struggle in our battle to put off sins that have gained a hold on us. This is an unfortunate consequence of being fallen human beings, even though we are saved. And this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking here about a person who professes Christ as Savior, but unrepentantly and persistently lives in blatant sin. And the Scripture is clear that such a person must be lovingly confronted. About this issue, Paul instructed the Galatian church, saying this, he said, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And Jesus gave these instructions in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the words of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And Jesus commended the Ephesian church for doing these things well. And although this is probably the most unpleasant part of being a leader in the church, the leadership here at RBC takes these admonitions from the Lord very seriously. Out of love for the flock, with humility, realizing our own weaknesses, we cannot and we will not allow persistent, blatant, unrepentant sin to go unchallenged in the flock. We just can't. That said, the goal of these confrontations is always restoration. and must always be done biblically and must be done in love. Now getting back to Jesus' third compliment, notice that the Ephesians also confronted false teachers who Paul had warned would try and infiltrate the church. These false teachers were men who proclaimed themselves as leaders, instructors, 
but they taught things which were not in accordance with God's word. Along those lines, notice verse 6, where Jesus compliments the Ephesians for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're not totally sure who these Nicolaitans were, but we think that they were followers of Nicholas, who ironically was named as one of the first deacons back in the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 5, verse 6. And it turned out that Nicholas was a false believer and a false teacher who led many into sin in a number of churches in the Asian region. Now, regarding Nicholas and his teachings, the early church father, Clement of Alexandria, made this rather curious comment about the follower of the Nicolaitans. I want to share it with you. He tells, he says, these guys, they abandon themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Okay. But again, the leadership in the Ephesian church was well taught in the scriptures and in in discerning error, and they didn't shrink from their responsibilities in confronting false teachers like Nicholas. And even today, our church will face some of these challenges here. And as Pastor Matt has pointedly brought to our attention in the past, any false teacher that might seek to infiltrate our church will be confronted in a loving but firm manner. So in summary, Jesus' third compliment was that the Ephesians knew the Scriptures well and lovingly and biblically confronted persistent, blatant, unrepentant sin in their midst. Now Jesus' fourth and final compliment is found at the very end of verse 3 where he commends and comments the Ephesians that they had not grown weary. And this was actually quite a compliment. You know, sometimes when a runner is running a real long race, a marathon, you know, they've run through the tire race, and they get to the finish line, and they stagger through the tape, and then what do they do? They collapse. They just fall down out of sheer exhaustion. Well, the Ephesians had worked hard and run the race of faith, and they had run it well for 35 years. And they were still running well. You see, there was no staggering in the Ephesian church. They were not weary, and they were determined to keep on running that race. And to sum it up, the Ephesians were a strong church that refused to quit running the race of faith. Now look... Now, looking at Jesus' four compliments and kind of taking them all together, the Ephesian church was solid. They were well taught, and the the leadership was doctrinally sound. They took their Christianity seriously, and they, they kept on going in spite of opposition. They worked hard at preaching the gospel and at teaching the scriptures, and they, they separated themselves from sin. And the leadership didn't shy away from doing the hard work of protecting the flock from false lead teachers and as well as confronting wayward sheep. This was a dream church. The kind any pastor in their right mind would absolutely love to shepherd. 
but in spite of all this, Jesus saw that the Ephesian church was in grave danger. And in verse 4, he expresses his deep concern. Remember that Jesus had told the Apostle John to get his message to the pastor of the Ephesian church and then instructed the pastor to convey this message to his congregation. And I can really only imagine what it must have been like sitting in that congregation when that pastor read that message aloud. You know, those in the church, they must have been, they must have been wide-eyed as they, they, were, they understood that Jesus Himself, the God of the universe, was directing a message directly to their little church. And they must have had a smile on their face as they heard Jesus sincerely compliment them on their effort, their adherence to truth, and their refusal to compromise with evil. But then they, they heard 13 short words from their Lord. But this I have against you. You have left your first love. I suspect there was, there was shocked silence after these words. And there must have been dumbfounded expressions on the faces of those staring back at their pastor. How could this be? And I don't know, but I suspect also that there were tears in that pastor's eyes. Because he knew that the horrifying statement made by Jesus was true. You see, the original language of this verse is even more shocking than it reads in English. Uh, First, in the original Greek, the words, your first love, are emphasized in this sentence. It's like they're, they're, they're underlined for emphasis. And this sentence literally reads, your first love, you have left. Now, when Jesus was talking about first love, He meant their earliest love. It was the love which they had back at the very inception of their church. It was the, it was the joyful, loving worship of Jesus as they lifted Him up and the name of the Lord was being magnified in their midst. It was the holy fear and awe of Jesus as the Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing as they watched. It was the rejoicing in Jesus as thousands of people in Ephesus turned to the Lord and repented and burned literally millions of dollars worth of witchcraft books. It was the first love that that permeated the relationships, the love expressed between those believers as they, out of love for Jesus Christ, ministered to one another and served one another. Also notice the other part of Jesus' statement. You have left your first love. You know, these Ephesians were 
Greek speakers, and they knew the Scriptures well. And this had to be like a knife plunged into their heart. See, there are a number of Greek words that Jesus could have used to convey this idea of having left. And the particular word that Jesus selected and used was also used by the Apostle Paul in a verse which I'm going to show you up here on the screen. You tell me which word it is. I'm going to read it to you. But to the rest I say, not to the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. What word do you think it is? It's divorce. That's the word. Though the context in the Revelation passage, this word obviously means left, not divorced. The implications of this word are that the leaving was by no means casual. Jesus was essentially telling the Ephesian believers that they had deliberately deserted. They had abandoned And they had walked away from Him. Wow. Have you ever been around a married couple who steadfastly clung to their their until death do us part commitment, but there was little or no warmth remaining in their relationship? You know, they talked to one another only when, when necessary and they obviously really don't want to spend time together. They're married in the eyes of the law, but they're, they're functionally divorced. They have deliberately, emotionally abandoned the relationship. Ever been around a couple like that? You see, Jesus' heartbreaking accusation was that the Ephesian believers had deliberately abandon their communion with Him, much like what happens during a divorce. Let there be no mistake about the nature of the relationship that the Lord Jesus desires with His people. When asked what was the greatest of all the commandments, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And even this morning, we have remembered and celebrated Jesus' immense love for us, demonstrated at the cross as He gave His life so that we might become God's children and even His bride. He loves us with a committed, passionate love. How could we do anything less than love Him back with that same love? One commentator aptly summed up the situation which Jesus confronted in this church. He said this, he said, The Ephesian believers were so busy maintaining their separation that they were neglecting adoration. Labor is no substitute for love. And purity, no substitute for passion. It's only as we love Christ fervently that we can serve Him faithfully. So thus far in this passage, we've looked at 
Jesus' compliments and Jesus' concern. Now let's look at Jesus' correction in verse 5. And it comes in the form of actually three commands. The first of Jesus' commands to the church was to remember from where you have fallen. And it's interesting to note that Jesus told this church to remember even before he told them to repent. You know, so much of our problems, mine included, is, is, is that we forget. And in this case, Jesus commanded them to remember from where they have fallen. And the Ephesians desperately need to remember what it was like to live in intimate communion with him and in fellowship with him. And they needed to remember the joy of unhindered times adoring and worshiping him. They needed to remember their sense of awe as the Lord's mighty power was being manifested in transformed lives. And they needed to remember the great joy and the cleanness they experienced as they put their faith in Christ. Overall, they needed to remember the joy of living in loving relationship to Jesus. The second of Jesus' commands to the Ephesians was to repent. Now, the word repent literally means to change your mind. You see, the Ephesians needed to change their thinking, viewing the Christian life as a balance between proper doctrine and loving communion with the Lord. They needed to turn from their their laser focus on proper doctrine and doctrinal correctness and reconnect with the one whom they had deserted. They also needed to see that what they were doing was sin, offensive to their Lord, and this transgression desperately needed to be corrected. The third of Jesus' commands to the Ephesians, again is in verse 5, was to do the deeds they did at first. And these first deeds were the activities done by the Ephesians right after they came to faith. So essentially, Jesus instructed them to begin doing the things that they were remembering as a result of Jesus' first command. True repentance, which Jesus required in his second command, always leads to changed behavior. And Jesus wanted to make sure that this congregation didn't fall short of true repentance. Well, having looked at Jesus' compliments, his concern, and his correction, now let's look at Jesus' caution at the end of verse 5. This caution is indeed a sobering one. Jesus said, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now we know that the lampstand is the church itself, but the removal of the lampstand is... That's figurative, and we've got to figure out what this means. Well, at a minimum, the lampstand removal meant a loss of the Ephesian church's productive influence for Christ, but it could also mean that Jesus was going to flat take out this church. Oof. This was a serious consequence for a serious sin. You see, living out of close communion and fellowship with Christ is is not a matter to be taken lightly. It's at the core of the Christian faith. 
You know, churches and even individuals who neglect this will cease being salt and light to those around them. So the only question remaining is, how should we apply Jesus' words to our own church? Well, for starters, I believe the application of this passage is very important for any of us parents who are raising children. You know, it is so easy for us to teach and our children to adopt the beliefs and forms of our Christian faith without the deep, passionate love for the Savior. Yet this is the element of Christianity, our deep love for Jesus. It's the most important thing. Without this deep affection for Him, it's it's all too easy for any of us, or our children for that matter, to lapse into loving the things of the world, which will inevitably result in compromise and spiritual corruption. It seems to be what was happening in the Ephesian church. And as parents, we must live in loving communion with Jesus Christ, as well as teach truth. We must model it. We must teach the importance of it. We must pray fervently for our children that they would learn and embrace that relationship with Christ. Also, the leadership, pointing to myself here, of RBC, we must be examples of the proper balance between truth and teaching truth and a loving relationship with Christ so the flock can follow our examples. And we do take that very, very seriously. Thus, we must make sure that our Christianity remains rooted in daily loving communion with Jesus. This mandate is especially true for RBC leadership who must model this loving communion, while resolutely teaching God's Word. So the question I'm compelled to ask all of you, and myself included this morning, is how is your communion with Jesus? Is it warm and joyful? Then that's good. That's pleasing to the Lord. Keep it up. Or has a distance grown between you and Jesus? Are you simply kind of going through the motions each day and with little or no fellowship and communion with Jesus? Is your Bible gathering dust on the shelf during the week? If this is you, then please take Jesus' words to heart. Remember, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. In closing, it's very interesting to note the Apostle Paul's final words in his letter to the Ephesian church. The final verse written some 30 years prior to this admonition we looked at today. Paul said this to that church. He said, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible, unceasing, undying Love. Amen, Paul. May this be true of our own lives as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as a church, 
and as individuals, we want to please you. Please help us to be balanced in our pursuit of you, in living in loving communion with you while immersing ourselves in living and teaching the truth of your word. Not one or the other, Lord, but both. Lord, please cause us to recognize if we had strayed from this balance so that we might turn back and walk with you in a manner that pleases you, Lord. Do this so that you and the Father may be glorified in us and your people, whom you dearly love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.